Good morning, everybody. Happy Monday to you all. Start of a new week, start of a, a first full week for phase two here in London. We started on Friday with the reopening of patios. Uh, I saw it didn't take people long to <laughs> to go out to a couple patios and, and right on. I mean, why wouldn't you? Uh, the weather was uh, pretty great over the weekend. Uh, only 10 degrees in downtown London right now, but it is going to get uh, a lot warmer today. In fact, the whole week looks like it's just going to be uh, perfect patio weather. So we could not have, you know, if we'd ordered weather for the uh, second phase of the reopening, uh, this is what we would have ordered. Uh, the forecast just looks beautiful. Today it's going to be sunny, high 24 Tomorrow it's going to be sunny, high 29. Uh, Wednesday and Thursday, both sunny, high 31, 33. Could have maybe uh, a heat warning on those days, as you heard with uh, John Wilson. Friday is going to be sunny, high 31. Even Saturday is going to be sunny, high 30. Uh, the The sun ends on Sunday with a chance of showers, but even then it's going to be pretty warm, high of 28. So maybe we can get some... Uh, patio time in some gardening time some outside time in general and even on sunday but the week ahead looks absolutely perfect so if you haven't been able to check out a patio yet uh, by all means get out there and uh, take advantage of it because uh, this is the weather for it we've been waiting so long we've been having uh, the three months of just inside all the time going out to parks but not going to parks it's been a uh, it's been an interesting three months so if uh if you've been craving those patios and you haven't gone yet, make your reservation and uh, check it out because uh looks like, a, based on my social media, um, everyone was on so on uh, a patio over the weekend and it was uh, good to see. Uh, we do have a busy, busy show coming up for you today. Uh, we will be talking and looking back over the weekend. We'll be talking to uh, Mike McCubre uh, from the Waltzing Weasel over in uh, East London. We'll see how the uh, first weekend uh, with patios went for them. Waltzing Weasel, um, as I mentioned, well, I've mentioned a couple times here, but um, last year was more up on every day I was on with Taz and Jim, and I was uh, coaching baseball last year. We haven't done it this year. Um, a couple friends teaching, uh, coaching, you know, 10-year-old kids is the level we're at. A lot of the games would be near the Waltzing Weasel, especially uh, our practices, so... You know, the Waltzing Weetzel became our uh, unofficial uh, clubhouse. And uh, nice to see uh, they've got their patio back open. And uh, by all accounts, it was a, a pretty good weekend. But uh, we'll talk to uh, Mike about how the first weekend went. That'll be in about uh, two hours on the show. And uh, we'll be talking uh, to some local businesses about um, just going digital during the pandemic. Ashley uh, Satchel from Featherfields uh, has worked with the good folks over at uh, Tech Alliance. And Tech Alliance on uh, Thursday of last week uh, were included in a uh, beefing up of the Digital Main Street program that began a little while ago, basically where they uh, work with uh, local businesses and help them improve their online presence, online shopping, everything. And they have beefed that up. So we'll talk to Ashley. She and Featherfield and some other businesses in London were involved in the first stage of this, so to speak. So we'll talk to her about that. We'll also talk to Christina Fox from uh, Tech Alliance CEO. Um, talk about that whole uh, beefing up and what they're going to be looking for as they move forward. And um, the big interview on today, and I've saved the best for last, is uh, Premier Doug Ford will be joining the show at 8.50. So we'll be ending the show by talking to the Premier. 
And there is a lot to uh, talk about. We'll uh, discuss the reopening. Phase two uh, for London began on Friday. There's uh, some uh, stories this morning suggesting uh, Toronto and uh, the greater Hamilton area will be uh, joining uh, the fun in either a week's time or two weeks' time. We'll see. Uh, But the reopening began here in uh, London on Friday, obviously. We had the social circle which was announced on Friday. Uh, Gatherings for the entire province are now up to 10. And uh, we're moving forward. But if you look down the United States, and we'll get into this a little bit in the headline segment uh, next segment, but they've had their reopening, and a month later, they're now starting to see huge numbers. I mean, just for example, in Arizona, Arizona, which is a state that has half the population we have, currently right now, they are seeing daily coronavirus totals of 1,300. 1,300 people a day being uh, infected with uh, coronavirus. They had their reopening around May 15th, the middle of May. So you move ahead a month, and uh, here they are. So there uh, are a lot of people actively uh, looking forward to the reopening, which is great, but you got to be careful about it. Now, the, the what led up to Arizona, for example, doing their reopening is a little bit different than Ontario. So I'm not suggesting what we're doing here. It's going to be where we where Arizona is right now. But uh, just a, a reminder: let's get out to those patios. Let's have fun. Let's not uh, let's not be Arizona though. Uh, so we'll be talking to uh, Doug Ford on the program at 8:50 this morning. Uh, there is lots to uh, discuss. So we'll be talking about that. Going to look back at the past uh, three months and uh, how it's gone, and also going to look ahead as well to the fall. It's only uh, mid-June, but school is not that far away. I know, I don't know how kids feel about school anymore. I mean, I was seeing a lot of stories about kids actually missing school. I mean, you, you go without it for three months, you're not around your friends. I can get, I can get, I can get where you, you miss school. Typically, you know, kids would not want to talk about going back to school in mid-June. They'd still be in school right now. But um, that's they're not in school right now. And as we look ahead to September, what is that going to look like? So we'll talk to the Premier about that as well. There's lots to discuss with the Premier. So Doug Ford on the program at 8.50 uh, this morning. And uh, just as a little reminder before we uh, go to our first break here, there was a story over the weekend about a man dressed as a police officer. He stopped and questioned a, a young woman in LaSalle. There have been a lot of cases of people impersonating police over the past couple of months. It seems as though it really just took off right after the shooting in Nova Scotia a couple months, a couple months ago, back in April. And since then, there have been at least maybe four or five cases of people driving replica vehicles, replica OPP vehicles in southwestern Ontario. Now we got this case of a person dressed as a police officer stopping and questioning a young woman in LaSalle. So uh, be wary out there, not telling people to distrust police if they're stopped, but um, just be careful with uh, some of these uh, creeps out there who are um, impersonating police. There have been, as I say, before, not including this one, but four or five cases of uh, people Uh, dressing as police and impersonating police, which is a disturbing trend, to say the least. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll have your headlines. This is The Morning Show with Devin Peacock on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.
Welcome back to the program, everybody. Let's check out your headlines for today. Canada saw COVID-19 cases and deaths continue to uh, trend downward on Sunday. The death toll rose by only 26 on Sunday, so we're up to 8,146 total for the entire country. The uh, national caseload increased by uh, less than 400 or up uh, by 376 yesterday. There are now close to 99,000 cases across Canada, most of them in Quebec and Ontario. So this week we will go past 100,000 cases, but it's taken us a while over the past uh, week or so to get up to 99,000. So uh, getting up to 100,000 is the negative, but the uh, slow pace we've uh, taken recently to get there is the positive. Officials uh, figured that uh, from Sunday... Uh, official figures from Sunday also include 13 deaths reported by Quebec uh, dating prior to June 6th. There was a reporting error there. Sunday is also the third time in a month uh, that the daily death toll was below 30. Active cases uh, number more than a little than 30,000, with more than 60,000 people considered uh, recovered. Ontario and Quebec both saw daily case counts under 200. Ontario reported 197 cases yesterday. Quebec reported 128. The two provinces also accounted for all the deaths we saw yesterday. Ontario reported 12. Quebec reported 14. Ontario has seen more than 2,500 people die from COVID-19. Alberta reported 50 new cases, no new deaths. Saskatchewan reported one new case. They have an active case that um, continues to remain uh, low. Manitoba reported one new case, but it's unclear if that was lab confirmed or just presumptive. The Atlantic provinces had no new cases or deaths on Sunday. Nova Scotia has now gone five days in a row with no new cases. New Brunswick saw no new case for the first time in seven days. Newfoundland and Labrador has only two active cases left. And the Northwest Territories, the Yukon and PEI have all seen their cases resolved for weeks now. They have no cases whatsoever. Nunavut remains the only place in the country that has not reported a positive case of COVID-19 at all during the pandemic. The coronavirus has now resulted in more than 7.8 million cases around the world and more than 432,000 deaths. The U.S. accounts for the highest caseload and death toll in the world, followed by Brazil. Brazil just passed the U.K. for the second spot on the list. It's a list no one wants to be on. Uh, for the first time in 10 days, London Middlesex has seen a case of coronavirus at a senior's home. The region had uh, three new cases reported on Sunday with five recoveries. No deaths were reported in London yesterday. So the total number of cases in the region is now up to 579. Total number of recoveries is at 440. The death toll stands at 57. Health officials say all new cases are from London, and one case is at that uh, long-term care home I mentioned. The health unit says outbreaks at two seniors' facilities remain active. One's at Chelsea Park Retirement Community, the other's at Kensington Village. For Elgin and Oxford, the uh, health officials for Southwestern Public Health did not release an update on Sunday, but as of Saturday, the total number of cases remains at 80. They have 70 recoveries and four deaths. Here on Perth, officials say one more person has recovered from COVID-19. They had no new cases to report yesterday, no new deaths to report yesterday. And for Sarnia and Lambton, one person has tested positive for the coronavirus, according to officials. There, the number of deaths and recoveries remains unchanged. Uh, as I was saying in the first segment, here's something to be wary of. As we begin the first full week of the second phase of the reopening with new daily coronavirus cases rising in at least a dozen states, two dozen states in the U.S., 
an explosion of new infections in Arizona is really stretching their uh, health care system. Arizona has emerged as one of the country's newest coronavirus hotspots with the weekly average of daily cases nearly tripling from two weeks ago. The total number of people hospitalized is climbing. So over the past week, Arizona has seen an average of more than 1,300 new COVID-19 cases each day. The state began easing restrictions on businesses in early May. They lifted their statewide lockdown after May 15th. Public health experts down in the U.S. do say the timing of the spike reflects the state's reopening. Arizona is one of the many cautionary tales from the United States as to not how to go about a reopening. They also started with numbers that are far different than we were at when we had our reopening and second stage of our reopening. Uh, Black Lives Matter London have announced a second protest to be held in the city. The protest is scheduled for 3 p.m. on Saturday. It'll be exactly two weeks after the first protest that drew an estimated 10,000 people to Victoria Park. In release, Black Lives Matter London are calling on London officials to take what they say where they uh, say it would be meaningful steps to address uh, racial justice, highlighting decades of systemic oppression. The list of demands calls for defunding of the London police and reallocating those funds to mandatory food security programs and schools, increased funding for mental health programs and housing for marginalized communities. Organizers say the protest will be a peaceful demonstration. If you do attend, you are advised to physically distance as much as possible, wear a mask and wash your hands before and after. Public health officials have said over the past couple of days here in London that uh, as we sit here a week after the uh, protest at Victoria Park, there is no sign of a big uh, spread of COVID-19 cases. Hopefully, uh, that is the case. Uh, Down in the United States, police in Atlanta have offered a $10,000 reward and published photos of what appear to be a masked white woman as they are looking for the people who burned down a Wendy's restaurant where a black man was fatally shot by an officer as he tried to escape arrest. The fast food outlet was torched late Saturday during demonstrations that erupted over the killing of 27-year-old Rayshard Brooks. Atlanta's police chief, Erica Shields, has resigned over the shooting. The officer suspected of killing Brooks has been fired and another officer involved in the incident was put on administrative leave. Both the officers are white. Uh, Brooks's death was captured on police body camera footage as well as surveillance video. Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms said on Saturday she did not believe the shooting was a justified use of deadly force. Police were called to the Wendy's after reports Brooks had fallen asleep in his car and was blocking the drive through line. They tried to take him into custody after he failed a field sobriety test according to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Body camera uh, footage shows Brooks struggling with officers on the ground before breaking free and running across the parking lot holding what appears to be a police taser. A second videotape from the restaurant's camera shows him turning as he runs and possibly aiming the taser at the pursuing officers before one of them fires his gun and Brooks falls. Prosecutors will decide by midweek whether or not to bring charges. A former provincial ombudsman says the police uh, shootings that have recently happened involving two indigenous people in New Brunswick have left him feeling distraught over the lack of police training. Bernard Richard uh, says he has long argued that uh, police are not well equipped to deal with people facing mental challenges. What appeared to be the case with the shooting victims of uh, Chantel Moore and Rodney Levi in most provinces, including New Brunswick, Richard says there are crisis intervention units around the clock that respond to these types of solutions. 
And officials with Trans Mountain estimate a weekend oil spill at a pipeline pumping station near Abbotsford, B.C., released about 190,000 liters of light crude. Although the investigation into the cause of the leak is ongoing, company officials say it appears an issue with a fitting on a 2.5-centimeter piece of pipe caused the problem. They added the spill was contained to the Trans Mountain property and has since been cleaned up. As of Sunday afternoon, all safety protocols were completed and the pipeline had restarted. Those are your headlines for this morning. We'll stop for news. We come back. We'll have more of the morning show with Devin Peacock on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Good morning, everybody. Happy to have you along with us today on the morning show. It's a little chilly out there right now. If you're out, uh, Walking the dog, you're just about to take the dog out. You might need a bit of a, uh, maybe just grab a coat, spring coat. It's uh, 10 degrees in London right now, but it's going to get nice and warm. High at 24 today. It's going to be a beautiful day, beautiful week in store. A beautiful week to hang out with your social circle, huh? You guys have your social circle set? I, uh, I just, I... It's great. I mean, on the one hand, hey, you know, we gotta we gotta start hanging out with other people eventually. And if the numbers are are going down and it indicates we're doing all the right stuff, well, then why not? We're not Arizona, right? We're not uh, Texas. We're not California. All these states where these had uh, cases being shooting through the roof lately. So sure, I mean, let's 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 get out. Let's hang. Let's uh, let's get on patios. Let's go to the mall. Let's uh, let's do stuff, huh? But uh, this whole social circle idea, I feel, could uh, could spiral out of control. First off, I just, I mean, the way they describe it, I just, I don't know if, is there anyone at these, you know, government agencies that ever just kind of, once they put together all the steps and all the, and all the advice, which all are perfectly you know they make sense it's it's good advice did they ever just just read it and review it just because the guidelines that came out on friday when they announced hey you can have your social circle of uh, up to 10 people they ended by saying be true to your circle (laughs) be true to your circle so you can have a, a social circle just be true to them you know if 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 all my friends are listening and you're in my social circle be true to me please uh, the social circle, though, is different than the gatherings. So right now, up, up until Friday, we had, you know, gatherings are limited up to five people. Now it's 10 people. But the gatherings is different than your social circle. So if you're going to be true to your social circle, what about the gatherings? But they had a step-by-step process on how to build a social circle. By the way, say social circle 10 times fast, huh? So I'm going to go through the steps here just because, I mean, it's good advice. I mean, begin by including those already in your household and anyone who'd come into regular uh, close contact with those who you live with, including babysitters or caregivers, include anyone in their households as well, even if you don't uh, see them often. So that's the first step. Second step is if your current circle is under 10 people, you can add other family members or friends. Consider those in their household to be part of your social circle. You may never see them, but they're considered to be part of your circle. So if you, you know, got a friend, and I'll say you're 30, and um, your friend's living at home or with, you know, roommates, 
all those people are now in your social circle. Uh, individuals at high risk of COVID-19, including uh, those over 70, can participate in social circles depending on the circumstances. Uh, step three, get an agreement and understanding from everyone who joins your circle. Frontline healthcare workers can join a circle so long as everyone understands the rules. Nothing like uh, having maybe a, a legal document, a written agreement between you and your social circle. They're not saying you should have a written agreement, but still. Uh, step four, continue to physically distance from anyone outside your circle. Follow public, public health advice, including frequent hand washing. And if someone inside your social circle begins to feel ill, they should self-isolate. Everyone else in the circle should closely monitor for symptoms and get tested if they do feel sick. Then step five was remain a part of only one social circle and, as I say, be true to your circle. I mean... Does it make sense? Uh, sure. But when you throw in the whole gatherings of up to 10 people, that's when you got to hold on to your butts and see where we go with this thing, right? I mean, <laughs> here we go. I just, you know, I'm, I feel like this is just going to spiral. Uh, Doug Ford was saying on Friday, there's not going to be a social circle police out there. So it's up to us all just to be to be good about this but if if my social circle in my household includes everyone in your household if you're part of my social circle it feels like that circle fills up pretty fast so uh the bubbles can't be too big but we're also got these gatherings happening and patios reopening and i don't know how that's going to work uh there was a story i was reading over the weekend and if you think if you think that's complicated for social circles, well, how about uh, the people who are polyamorous in Canada? Polyamorous uh, people are the people who have more than one partner, and their partners can have more than one partners. And it's this community where you all agree, okay, we are this group of interchanging partners, and we're cool with it. Non-monogamy, right? And early on in the pandemic if you're polyamorous you're either stuck with no one or you're stuck with one partner and that kind of goes against the whole their whole lifestyle and so there was this story and they used this one woman as an example there were a couple of different people featured in the article but the one woman just kind of you know melted your brain in terms of how this works so this one woman is ready to bring her boyfriend into her social bubble. But first, she had to discuss her plans with her long-term partner, her long-term partner's spouse, and her long-term partner's spouse's partner, who also happened to be her soon-to-be ex-husband. So you've got a woman, her partner, his wife, her partner, who is the original woman's ex-husband, and this woman's boyfriend. Like, try to keep the dots together for that one. I mean, good luck to you. I don't, you know, if if everyone's, you know, of age and you're, you're all willing, then, you know, by all means, it's, it's no skin off my nose. But that's, um, good luck keeping track of that. And uh, there's, you know, there's thruples out there. And I was, I was told recently, 
about a uh, someone I, I I'm not friends with him, but they were telling me uh, someone of, of so who was well, how did this go? A friend of mine was telling me about a friend's ex who was now a part of a thruple. And I just, I'm, I'm somewhat fascinated by thruples and polyamory and just how, I mean, that's kind of a big matzo ball to drop on someone. Like I'm sure there's there's chat rooms and stuff that makes it easier to find people who are already inclined to that uh, way of life and lifestyle. But if not, that's a big, it's uh, a big uh, revelation to drop on someone. But if you find someone who's you know willing to do it, then by all means, uh, I guess some polyamory polyamorous couples are um, hierarchical. So you could have a primary partner, a secondary partner, and then a you know partner that you know other partners that are around. And so one of the problems pa- posed by the pandemic has been now in these polyamorous relationships, people are finding out where they rank amongst all their partners. And it would, I guess it would, you know, kind of suck if you're like third on everyone's list, <laughs> you're in all these couples and it's great, but you're third on everyone's list. So, um, shout out to all the polyamorous people out there. If there's uh, any in London, I'm, there's gotta be at least some, we can't have none. I would imagine there's in the United States, uh, there's no official data on the number of polyamorous people in Canada, but in the United States, an estimated four to five percent of people reported being polyamorous. Four to five percent of people in the United States, given how many people they have, is a lot of people. So there's there's got to be you know a, a decent number of polyamorous people in uh, Canada. So if any of you are listening, uh, best of luck to you. Have 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 fun navigating those waters. I'm having trouble. I'm just I'm single. <laughs> Uh, we'll take a break. We'll uh, come back with more of The Morning Show with Devin Peacock on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Good morning, everybody. Uh, this is not good news for your old buddy Devo. As I've uh, shared multiple times, I'm, I'm, you've got to know by now I'm bald. If you didn't, <laughs> I, I'm, I talk about it on a surprisingly uh, uh, on a frequent basis, uh, but this is not good good news for for your old buddy Devo and all your bald friends out there. Uh, bald men appear to be at a higher risk of suffering from coronavirus symptoms. A risk factor is being named after a, a New York man who was the first U.S. doctor to die from coronavirus. So the link emerged during studies trying to show why men suffer worse from COVID-19 than women. This is a paper from the UK. And scientists now believe that androgens, which is the male sex hormone, which is similar to testosterone, may boost the ability of the coronavirus to attack cells. Those same androgens are also understood to be behind baldness, marking a sign of a vulnerability uh, to the disease. In one study, almost 80% of the coronavirus patients in three Madrid hospitals were bald, according to the uh, Telegraph over in the UK. The link is now being called the Gabrin sign. It's named after the 60-year-old doctor from, the, uh, from New York who worked in the ER, Frank Gabrin who died in his husband's arms in their Harlem apartment back in late March. Uh, the alarming trend could spark a positive outcome, however, 
Numerous studies are also looking at if treatments to suppress the hormones, uh, including ones used for prostate cancer as well as baldness, may help slow the virus. So, if you're bald, you know, be careful out there, guys. Us bald brothers got to stay together. I was um, I was walking along the street the other day, and what do you guys find if you just cough when you're out and about? People just look at you weird. It, I, it was kind of dry. I didn't have any water with me. I had a bit of hair in my in my throat. I swear, it's, not, it's nothing. But I coughed. I coughed like three times. Uh, there was a one cough. There was a pause. Another cough. There was a pause. And there was a third cough. And there are other people on the street, and you cough, and people look at you. Well, the cough police need to just calm down because a study has found you cannot tell the difference between a sick cough and a healthy cough. So stop judging people for their coughs. Humans cannot tell the difference between the cough someone with infection makes and someone who just has a tickle in their throat. And I've had a couple tickles during the show, not today, but in previous shows. A little, little tickle gets there. So this is in the, if you want to read it, no one's going to read it, but the proceedings in the uh, Royal Society B, there's a million medical journals out there. So people uh, can tell uh, sometimes with uh, smell and sight, apparently, but uh, when it comes to sound, that hasn't really been uh, looked into too much. So uh, Nick Mahalik is a social psychologist at the University of Michigan. He says, many organisms, including humans, have developed uh, behaviors to prevent pathogens from causing infection in the first place, but we cannot accurately suss out if someone else is in infected based on sound. So uh, Nick Mahalik and his colleagues play short audio clips of coughing from sick people and from healthy people, and they asked over uh, 200 volunteers whether each cough was from someone who was sick or not. And basically, per people were no better than a coin flip. So someone can cough near you, and you can flip a coin, and you'd be about as right as that flip of a coin. So if someone coughs from you, near you, doesn't necessarily mean they've got uh, COVID. They might just have a, a normal cough, no reason to look at a guy walking down the street like he's uh, going to kill us all. There was a really, um, as, I, as I've said numerous times, I love these random surveys and how many spur of the moment decisions would you say you make every year? Just a spur of the moment decision. Survey has found the average person makes 6,709 spur of the moment decisions a year, which, you know, you think about how many you make a day. I don't know. You, you can make any spur. I'm like, what's a spur of the moment decision? Spur of the moment decision could be, you know what? Instead of having a sandwich, I'm gonna I'm gonna have a a wrap. I don't know. That, that could be anything, right? So I'd almost say like six thousand seven hundred nine spur of the moment decisions a year is almost low. Here are uh, some quick stats from the study. So over eighty percent of us can uh, think we are a spontaneous person to some degree. Uh, people who do think they are spontaneous. We're 40% more likely to say they're also a happy person. 
38% are more likely to feel content with their life. Uh, 72% of people said they feel happier after they do something spontaneous. And over half of us have gone on a last minute trip in the past five years. Almost all of those people say it made them happier. Um, those spontaneous decisions are great. Although I would say uh, I I've, I've made plenty of spontaneous decisions uh, during the pandemic. There are some cases where a little willpower also makes you feel good where you, you're not going to order another burger. You're going to order in, but maybe it's going to be something a little bit healthier. Maybe, maybe you don't add on the pie to the order. Maybe you're, you're good. So you can, you can have the spontaneous, but you can also maybe not, uh, just really add to the waistline. And one of my favorite stories uh, from the past uh, week was this guy in Germany who shoplifted $6 worth of stuff from a grocery store and was immediately got cut because he decided to shoplift and then run away. But he was out shopping with his son. So his eight-year-old son was left behind and his kid, kids looking at his dad running away like, what the heck's going on? As he was also running away, he tripped and fell. So on the uh, Hall of Fame of just terrible criminals, this guy is making a steady climb up the list. Decided to shoplift for only six bucks, left behind his son, and tripped as part of his escape. Wasn't exactly hard to find. Uh, we need to stop for news. When we come back, we'll have more of The Morning Show with Devin Peacock on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Good morning, everybody. We're into the second hour of the program. Still uh, chilly in downtown uh, London, only uh, 10 degrees right now. It's a chilly start to what overall is going to be a uh, sunny day, a warm day, and a warm week. A high of 24 today, then we're about uh, around 30 for the rest of the week. High of 29 tomorrow, 31 Wednesday, 33 Thursday, 31 Friday, 30 on Saturday. Uh, Sunday's a bit rainy, but even then it's a high of 28. So we got a pretty warm week in store, a real nice week to get out on a patio and, and uh, enjoy some time outdoors. Um, you know how in 2012 we thought the, uh, well, we is a bit generous. Uh, how in 2012 uh, there was the uh, conspiracy theory that according to the Mayan calendar, the world was going to end December 21st, 2012. We had the uh, John Cusack uh, mute, uh, movie about it all. I think it was even called 2012. Well, uh, it obviously it did not happen because we are here today. It now turns out, according to a uh, new conspiracy theory going around, that we've uh, we got the date wrong. And so this one guy is a scientist, Paolo Tagalokan. He tweeted last week uh, the following: Following the Julian calendar, we are technically in 2012. The number of days lost in a year due to the shift into Gregorian calendar is 11 days. So for 268 years using the Gregorian calendar uh, times 11 days equals 2,948 days. 2,948 days uh, divided by 365 days per year. Uh, three, 365 days per year would equal eight years. So his whole convoluted math brought us out to the world ending in 2020. And so if you add up all the missed days, according to the Mayan uh, calendar, the doomsday date is sometime this week. So 
We thought the world was going to end in 2012. Uh, Again, that's um, a very generous usage of the word we. It did not happen. Tons of people went down to um, uh, Guatemala and uh, and Mexico and different Mayan sites there. Uh, The story I saw said they went down only to be disappointed because uh, the world didn't end. Imagine being disappointed that you're still alive. So, uh, hey, if if COVID-19, all the civil unrest, the volcanic eruptions, the hurricanes, the locusts that have all happened so far, and it's not even halfway through the year, aren't enough of an indication, uh, maybe uh, this is, uh, the world's going to end this week. Now, assuming the world does not end this week, uh, there's a uh, bunch of researchers from Switzerland that are working on something that's pretty cool. So... One of the problems and issues that have arisen um, with all the mask wearing is people have said, you know, people who are deaf, who usually will read lips, can no longer uh, do that. And so the masks are proving to be a bit of a a challenge for people for many reasons, for one being the the fact that uh, if you're deaf, you can't see. Uh, Two, people just don't like the masks. They're not as personal not as breathable. And so there is a group of uh, researchers from Switzerland who have been working on this for about two years. So this began well beyond, well before the pandemic hit. And it started really in 2015 when this one researcher, his name's Klaus Schonenberger, he was assisting with the Ebola outbreak in West Africa and one of the issue uh, issues people had was they didn't know who they were talking to because everyone's all masked up. And so what some of the nurses and doctors would do is they would pin photos of themselves onto the chest so the patient could see uh, their faces. For This is what helped for people in general, but also people who just were lacking uh, that uh, facial interaction beyond those who would be hearing impaired. And so he said it was really touching to see people who were putting those pictures on their chest just so people knew who they were talking to. And so they went out and they tried to create a mask that would be transparent. It's transparent, it's breathable, and they hope it would uh, replace the traditional mask that's been used, uh, that's medical grade. It's called Hello Mask, if you want to Google it. And basically, it's it looks like, you know, this is a light fabric that you can see through. You can obviously see someone's wearing something, but uh, you can see their lips. You can see them smile. I mean, I've had people who have um, uh, shared encounters where they've been walking on the street. And if you're wearing a mask and you're walking on the street, people can't say if you're, if you're smiling or not. Now, you can always nod, but... You know, it's, it's you know, we like, we are a, a social species. We like to have that uh, human interaction, that facial interaction, and these uh, masks uh, could work. So they are aiming to have production launch as early as 2021, which, assuming it's it passes all the, 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 guidelines and, you know, they, they're, they're safe and medical grade, then why not? I mean, it'd be pretty cool. So Hello Mask is what it's called. If you want to give it a Google, and they've got a video out. doesn't look too bad. And this is a bit uh, 
bit crude, but there's there's just some stories out there that makes me just wonder how in the world politics, like if we think our politics is bad or weird or has gone too far, just look around the world. And so this is an actual city councilor in uh, the city of Taipei, Taiwan. So there was a recall vote for the mayor of Taipei uh, that got interesting when a city councilor, an actual, like a, a legitimate city councilor, not some sort of, uh, some sort of wannabe politician. This is an actual elected official pledged to chop one chopstick in two with his buttocks for every 10,000 votes exceeding 400,000 and the recall against the then mayor who had infuriated people because he ran as the Chinese National Party's candidate in the presidential elections uh, back in uh, January. So people were upset that he wasn't paying attention to his mayor duties, was more focused on the presidential elections. They wanted to recall him. And this city councilor decided to put out this call that he would sn snap a chopstick with his butt for every 10,000 votes, exceeding 400,000. He ended up getting 574,000 votes, almost 575,000 votes. And so he kept his promise. And he posted a video last week of him doing this, prompting some doctors to tell people not to follow his lead to do this because... You could get splinters, basically, is the uh, is the real Coles Notes version of this. So that is an actual politician who has actually done this, which is just like, um, imagine someone from London City Council did this. Um, just imagine someone from London City Council saying, if we, we crawl the mayor, which we don't have the ability to do, but if we had the possibility, I will snap a chopstick in my butt for every 10,000 votes exceeding 400,000. Just imagine that happening in this country. And that happened, that's an actual story in Taiwan. Just unbelievable. And we'll end on that note. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll have more of The Morning Show with Devin Peacock on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Good morning, everyone. Last week, we learned that uh, two of Canada's largest grocers are ending wage premiums. They've been paying to employees during the pandemic. Loblaw and Metro have been paying frontline employees an additional $2 an hour since mid-March, when the restrictions due to COVID-19 were first put in place. In a letter to customers, Loblaw Executive Chairman Galen Weston said that things have now stabilized at the company's supermarkets and drugstores. Both Loblaw and Metro said they were ending the temporary wage premiums on Saturday. Loblaw says it will also pay a total of $25 million in one-time bonuses to employees based on their average hours worked over the last 14 weeks. Metro says it will pay an additional one-time bonus of $200 to each full-time employee and $100 to each of its part-time employees. To talk about this, I wanted to bring on Sylvain Charlebois. He's the scientific director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. I talked to him earlier. Here's that conversation. We are hearing about these wage premiums uh, paid to grocery store workers ending, stopping uh, Saturday. Uh, there was some hope a few months ago it would remain, but obviously that's not going to be the case. 
No. Uh, so the first retailer out of the gate it was uh, a couple of weeks ago with co-op in Calgary. Uh, over a dozen retailers in the United States have already decided to end their uh, quote-unquote hero pay programs. Uh, so we were expecting uh, this to happen. Uh, so we've heard now from uh, both Loblaw and Metro, uh, they're announcing the end of their, their program. Uh, we haven't heard uh, anything from, from Sobase, but they have said that they are uh, reevaluating their own program. And so, uh, the, so over the next little while, we are expecting several programs to end, unfortunately. Some businesses called it hero pay. Was that a good idea when uh, you look at it now and you're ending hero pay? It doesn't exactly look great. <laughs> it suggests that people were heroes only for a while, uh, I guess. Uh, it wasn't probably it wasn't the really the best term to use, uh, but people saw them as heroes. And uh, if you remember, only 12 weeks ago. When grocers decided to do this, um, essentially to address this this issue of absenteeism, a lot of workers just didn't want to work in a grocery store anymore. Uh, increases were celebrated, uh, and, and these people, the work that they do, uh, the work they did, and they are still doing, uh, was actually quite uh, valued by everyone. But I've always questioned uh, first the term itself, but secondly the the sustainability of of these programs, knowing that uh, most stores will generate a proper margin of about one percent. So if you increase salaries by say ten to fifteen percent, uh, it's very difficult to see how a store can be can remain profitable unless um, you lay off people and use more automation. Is there a way to, I mean, would they have to change sort of the business model or, I mean, if this were to be sustainable, if this is something, uh, you know, Canadians at large were hoping would continue uh, with margins, you know, of 1%, it's difficult to, to see that. So what would need the change for these types of salaries to be sustainable? Uh, I think I think we're we're uh, we're seeing a missed opportunity here for grocers. Uh, I actually do think that the business model should uh, should be revisited. Right now, it's a it's still a high volume, low margin sort of business, and it will remain so for for the next little while. The problem with COVID is that it has increased the cost to manage a store by anywhere between five to seven percent. So. And when you walk into a grocery store, you are greeted by a security guard, and then you're greeted by someone who just manually washed your cart, and you have to wash your hand. A lot of these things can actually be done by a machine. It's very repetitive and labor-intensive. And over time, all of these actions, all of these tasks do add up and will cost more. And so I do think that because of of uh, of new cleaning measures things that you need to do as a grocer you you have to think about your operations very differently one of the other you know pressures facing the gro- grocery industry right now aside from just uh, you know, the tight margins is we have this emerging aspect of e-commerce uh, buying online um, that requires more investment uh, to improve it but also it changes the dynamic a little bit 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, so customers, of course, are, are, are different than just uh, a few months ago. Uh, e-commerce is another reach. I mean, our grocers will have to reinvest in e-commerce and, and, and how do you support an e-commerce strategy lower for different talent. And that talent has a lot to do with uh, with the ability to manage data, for example, to to understand analytics also. So to retain the talent, you need to pay people more. And that's why I think that this may have been a missed opportunity, other than the fact that, of course, a lot of people that do work in a grocery store are, are uh, often single mothers, uh, students, uh, Retired with fixed income, uh, many people uh, coming from uh, underprivileged demographic groups. Uh, so we're you're looking at a at a vulnerable uh, part of the population that uh, that actually I think deserves more money. You mentioned the missed opportunity. I mean, these the people who are running, you know, these, you know, big conglomerates, they, they must be aware of these opportunities. Is it uh, that that change would be difficult or it'd be uh, expensive? Or why do you think uh, they're not really seizing upon the opportunity that has presented itself here? Well, it's a day-to-day business. I mean, if you've been in the grocery business, you will recognize that it's a very intensive uh, market. Uh, every single hour, you have to make decisions based on what you're buying, what you're selling. Uh, when you look at a store in particular, I mean, some some categories, uh, the inventory is turned over over almost 150 times a year. Like, think about that. It's just so. It's just a massive organization, and you have to sell billions and billion dollars worth of food only to generate a few hundred million dollars in profits. So, and, and a lot of people may not appreciate how difficult it is to make a profit in the grocery business. So the focus has been on that, and we are dealing with an oligopoly in Canada. There are just a handful of players. So you're always one recall, one mistake away from losing money, and, uh, and other competitors will benefit very quickly. So grocers have to be careful with how they actually manage their stores. And that's why I'm not surprised to see uh, this withdrawal uh, related to hero pay, but it's a bit disappointing. Do you think uh, grocery stores could face a backlash from consumers uh, because of this? Here's the real question that I would ask consumers. Uh, I would say this, if you are willing to celebrate higher salaries, higher wages, for people working in a grocery store, are you willing to pay for it? Are you willing to play a part? In other words, are you willing to accept higher food prices? And given the economy right now, I'm not sure the answer is yes for a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of consumers are, are, are going to be facing major financial pressures in the next little while, and grocers know that. And, and that's why I think we're seeing uh, Loblaw and Metro making this decision today, and probably I would say Sobeys will follow suit. Sylvain, I certainly appreciate the time today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. That is Sylvain Charlebois, Scientific Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of The Morning Show with Devin Peacock on Global News Radio 980 CFPL.
Welcome back to the program, everyone. We are a couple days into phase two of the reopening in London. It's a step in the right direction, but it'll be a while before we're back to where we were. Online has become king during the pandemic. Online spending has gone through the roof. It'll be interesting to see what the lasting impacts are. Obviously, e-commerce is not going anywhere. Last week, the federal and provincial governments announced a project to assist small business and make digital transformations. The initiative is called Digital Main Street, and it's actually an expansion of something that exists already. The goal is to provide uh, support to small business through the platform. It is a 57 million dollar program to support retailers through London's five BIAs as well as Tech Alliance. To talk about this, we are joined by Christina Fox, CEO of Tech Alliance for Southwestern Ontario. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me on, Devin. The pandemic uh, has taught us a lot of things. It's really highlighted, though, the importance of having an online component to your business, in particular uh, e-commerce. Yes, I would, I would absolutely agree with you. When you think about the capability of um, small businesses, small and medium-sized businesses who um, often enjoy a shop local experience with their loyal customers where they receive foot traffic and there's that exchange and transaction and connection, um, during the pandemic that has been a little bit lost for, for many retailers and hospitality. And uh, there's certainly been a discovery that the shift to online experiences and, and online transactions has been really key for companies to ensure that they've got that cash revenue and that customer experience that continues uh, beyond what has been the the traditional foot traffic and and in-store experience, that brand experience. It's a shift for the retailers, but it's also a shift for the consumer a little bit in that, you know, when I think in the past when we've thought of e-commerce, it's, oh, it's Amazon, it's, you know, it's whatever you're ordering from. Uh, and you go, if you're local, you go to their store in person. We can't do that, obviously. So um, to have a program uh, like this, a digital Main Street, I think is uh, really important because it's shifting how we view, uh, you know, supporting local business. Yeah, I would definitely agree. Through the, the existing digital main street with the additional investment by um, our federal and provincial governments, there is an expansion now to something called future-proofing main street program. And what this really does do is address the idea that customers have particular demands and have particular shopping expectations. And while many people got very comfortable with experiences through Amazon, Shopify, and even eBay, what we're discovering is that love for shopping local or being able to purchase something that's not in your own community, either in another province um, or in another country entirely, and be able to make that selection and have that sent with that convenience has really been something that has happened around the world, um, and particularly more local businesses and more Main Street businesses are realizing the greater potential for them to share their products and experience with uh, customers that aren't necessarily in their close-by neighborhood. So what's involved with uh, the digital Main Street uh, platform and how it's evolving and how Tech Alliance is involved here? Sure. So as a result of this $57 million investment by government in Ontario, we will see through Tech Alliance as the regional innovation center for the region, we will see an opportunity to really collaborate with other BIAs in our communities. And, and what that means is not just here in London, um, because Tech Alliance's geographic footprint means that we have the reach to Sarnia, St. Thomas, Woodstock, Goderich, and all of the small towns in between. And what it allows us then to do within the investment is support um, companies with a, an advanced level of support. 
It's really tailored to the needs of the business, and we will deliver this future-proofing support, meaning if a pandemic or something else happened again, we're supporting them in future-proofing their business. What that actually means is it's Main Street businesses and retail, hospitality, and service sectors that complement their brick-and-mortar experience with this robust online presence. And how that will happen is with uh, local digital marketing expertise, will be paired with student talent. So imagine either underemployed or displaced thought leaders in digital marketing and e-commerce paired with student talent that may not otherwise have an internship or co-op lined up given the economic uncertainty. And they will come together and work with companies to provide really customized support in either developing global market strategies, contemporary digital marketing, or advanced e-commerce capability and brand experiences. So really what we're looking at is when a customer is looking for an item or a service and they land on the website, they can have a similar experience, transact securely, and have something shipped to them. So that's really the end-to-end -end customer experience that will be deployed by local talent. That's part of the, the piece of it that is so very exciting. It's not only an economic stimulus, but it's also job creation. And that, to me, is, is the secret sauce. It's really interesting, and I, I think what's uh, interesting on, on top of that is, you know, part of uh, what you discussed with, you know, future uh, proofing support in that I think, and I don't think it's uh, people would disagree that beyond the pandemic, once this is over, this is changing how we evolve and how we, we look at uh, supporting local business. And so this is something that has legs well beyond the pandemic. I, I totally agree. When we think of the innovation economy, and habits that have been formed and are, are certainly more concrete as a result of the pandemic, the way that we've gone about in securing what we need for our homes and our families and our businesses has been very different. And so when you think about the habits that have been created as a result of the innovation economy and technology-enabled businesses, this kind of a change is creating a convenience that people desire. So it's nice to know that you can make purchases and have that in-person experience but it's also really key for us to understand that the world and the future of work, which is, you know, right here and what's happening right now is working for all of us. And so when we think of, of Main Street businesses who also want to future-proof or play in the space where the, the revenue opportunity and the, the growth of their company is really key, this helps them with a, another tool in their toolkit um, that's related to interesting place for us to play as tech alliance through our advisors and entrepreneurs and residents. And we're interested in building a tech community and creating a vibrant experience for innovation. And bringing Main Street businesses closer in this way is really making that bridge between technology and Main Street. And I think it's, it's time. You mentioned it's time. Do you find, you know, maybe in, in the past, um, uh, people were a bit leery of online, they're a little bit unsure, do I need it for my business, whatnot? I, I think that people have, you know, come around into seeing the value and the way it can, it can, uh, it can add to, to your business. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I remember um, a time when, when everyone was leery about using their credit card in an online space. And because of uh, the kinds of security and transaction security that are available through fintech companies and just other, you know, other ecosystem supports, the, the concept of security and transactions um, is really there's much more peace of mind than there ever was before. What I really like about the fact that you can purchase online is you can see experiences. So, for example, if you're interested in making a purchase 
for Father's Day. You can go and look for your favorite Yeti tumbler and look at a number of different options and see what the picture looks like and see where it is that you'd like to support. So when I think of the kind of purchasing that I have done or I, I do in the future, really there's that convenience factor and there's coupled with the interaction that I have. But the security piece I think is is really behind us uh, now with the, with the use of online purchase and online transactions. People are really comfortable in this space and it's good to see um, that we've got other companies coming along. Uh, Christina, I certainly appreciate the time today. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Devin. It was great to speak with you. That is Christina Fox, CEO of Tech Alliance of Southwestern Ontario. We need to break. When we come back, we'll have more of The Morning Show with Devin Peacock on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Welcome back, everybody. Good to have you along with us. Just a reminder, in an hour's time, we will be discussing uh, the reopening and talking a lot more with our Premier Doug Forbes. That'll be at 8.50 on the morning show. We were just discussing the Digital Main Street program with Christina Fox from Tech Alliance. The announcement last week was to beef up the program that was already in place. So they work with some local businesses just to grow their digital footprint. Uh, there are some local businesses that were involved in that first stage of the program. One of those businesses is Featherfields, located at 1570 Hyde Park Road, basically at Hyde Park in Gainsborough. Uh, they were voted, actually, Best Kept Secret for Shopping in 2020 in the annual Best of London contest. I was checking out their uh, website over the weekend and they got some pretty good stuff so if you're a bird lover if you're a gardener if you're both uh, you should be uh, checking them out Ash ashley uh, satchel owns featherfields she joins us now i appreciate your time today thank you very much thanks for having me <laughs> well i just wanted to talk about the uh, digital mainstream program obviously but i want to start just by talking about the pandemic what have the past uh, three months been like for you guys yeah, it's been uh, it's been very interesting. We um, we had to find new ways of uh, staying afloat and making a little bit of money. So I was very fortunate in the fact that we were able to do curbside pickup, being um, a animal feed uh, type store. So we did that for the past few months, uh, and that has definitely kept us going. But it's it's clearly been a challenge because it was something you know obviously new to us and to everybody. So, yeah. The pandemic has forced us all to go digital. I'm, I'm still broadcasting yeah. from home. You're doing the curbside uh, pickup yeah. uh, and have for, for a while. How important yeah. is it to have that digital footprint? Oh, we, we, this really truly proved that it was, it's more uh, important than we ever, ever dreamed or ever thought. Uh, before the pandemic, we already had a plan in place to upgrade um, because when I took over the business, I'm the second owner. We've been there for 24 years. Um, so uh, being the second owner, I wanted to upgrade the website. Um, and as soon as this pandemic hit, it really set in that uh, it's a tool that everyone in 2020 is using and now more than ever. So we really found it was uh, urgent and uh, we just launched the website last week. Lots of things to be added, lots of um, improvements to, to come, but it was, it was, yeah, it's definitely uh, um, proving to be the most important aspect of the business right now, for sure. It's interesting when we look at this because, um, you know, online should not just be the domain of Amazon. And certainly, you know, when when I've been shopping in the past, you know, we always, I look up, you know, rest, you know businesses, restaurants, mm -hmm. whatever, online. But we never think sometimes to online shop just because I would prefer to go to the store in person anyway. And this, of course, pandemic, that was not possible. Yeah. And so it's almost a, you know, rethinking on the consumer as much as anything else that, you know, these local businesses um, are 
are, there's multiple ways to shop. Certainly going to the shop is important and we should still do that. And once this is over, we should absolutely still do that. But there's the online yeah. component that's really maybe there's more, it won't be uh, maybe the same as before, but there's there's a balance there we need to achieve. Absolutely. That's something that we've um, we've really considered. And like I mentioned, that we had thought about this before the pandemic. And then this just proved to be the, the time to try it out and the time to really launch and, and get out there. Because I have a lot of customers, too, that have shopped with us since uh, the day the store opened or since the very beginning. So they don't do a lot of online shopping. Um, but because we were closed, we had a lot of phone calls and a lot of people saying, you know, can I look at your website and see what types of things you have or you carry or, you know, that type of thing. So um, we're working very quickly to get everything up on that website uh, so people can see and start shopping from home and uh, ease into it. I even personally was never a big online shopper and uh, definitely the past few months have, have proven that that's the way things are going. So, yeah. How did the uh, digital Main Street program work for you? So it's been fantastic, and the timing couldn't have been any better. When I first heard about it, it was it was quite some time ago. It was last summer, um, and I got really excited because I thought this is something we need to, you know, if I can um, apply to this grant and work with the government and, and the city and the BIA um, of Hyde Park, then, uh, you know, it would be very beneficial for us because we um, had a website, but it was very outdated and we felt that we were just falling behind um, in different ways, definitely in the technology area of our business. Um, so the timing of all of this has been wonderful. Uh, we, I worked and worked and got the, got the grant um, from the, the government. And uh, once we got that, we got rolling on this website right away. And because I'm not tech savvy, I uh, was able to therefore get some assistance in how to do it because I didn't know how to create a website and I didn't know how to do any of these types of things. And we're doing some upgrades that correspond with the website uh, within the store, like our point of sale. So it's been fantastic. We're, we're very pleased. <laughs> if uh, people would like to check you out, how can they do that? Yeah, absolutely. So right now we are at uh, www.featherfields.com. And, uh, and we're hoping to reopen in a few weeks. Um, so we haven't picked a date yet, but we're, we're working that way. Um, and we're taking phone orders still for the curbside, which is lovely. Um, so again, you can go to our website, see what we've got, um, and then just give us a call. The, the e-shopping is not quite ready. It's almost there. Um, but again, it's one more layer to things that we're working on. So it's a slow process, but it's, it's, uh, well worth it. So. Uh Absolutely. Ashley, I certainly yeah. appreciate the time today. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. That is Ashley uh, Satchel, owner of Featherfield. They're located at 1570 Hyde Park Road, as I say, basically Hyde Park and uh, Gainsborough. And her, the website is featherfields.com. Give them a call at 519-474-1165. As I say, I was uh, checking out the uh, website over the weekend and they've got a lot of great stuff. Um, my, uh, my family's always been uh, big with, um, you know, having bird feeders and everything, uh, at, uh, my parents' old house before uh, they sold, but also at our cottage up North. And some of the stuff, um, made me think we probably need to upgrade <laughs> what, we, what we, excuse me, what we have. Uh, it's a great place. And as we've been talking right from the beginning, we got to support local business and, um, Featherfields is a great example of one of those uh, local businesses being around for 20 years, as, as uh, Ashley was saying. And uh, those are the ones that are the ones that make the city great. So uh, uh, check them out. 
Featherfields.com. We need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of The Morning Show with Devin Peacock on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We are into the uh, third hour of the program, everyone. Good to have you along with us. Before the hour is out, we'll be talking to Premier uh, Doug Ford. He'll be joining the show in about uh, 40 minutes or so. Currently uh, 12 degrees in downtown London. Bit of a chilly start uh, to the day, but it's uh, sunny. It's going to be a really warm uh, day today, really warm week ahead. Uh, Perfect patio weather. We had uh, some uh, good weather over the weekend as well. I mean, if you could have ordered... um, any better patio weather, I don't think we could have. Uh, maybe a touch warmer over the weekend, but uh, certainly I'm not going to complain. It was a, a step in the right direction as we move along the uh, recovery. Uh, to talk about how the first weekend uh, went with uh, restaurant patios, we're joined by Mike McCubre, owner of the Waltzing Weasel at Adelaide and Windermere. Uh, Mike, uh, good to talk to you today. You too. How was the weekend for you guys? Good. Uh, we were fairly busy and um, lots of familiar faces that we hadn't seen for a while were at so uh all in all it was a a good weekend who would you say was uh, more excited uh, you guys or your customers um i think probably uh was about equal we were excited to get back at it and i think uh, people were excited to get out what has the uh, pandemic been like for you for the uh, past three months um, well, stressful, I guess we're, you know, in the beginning, you really knew, knew, uh, nothing about what was going on. And as, uh, uh more information came out, uh, the concern about how long it was going to last and when, how long we were going to be closed. So, uh, we did a lot of repair and maintenance and painting and fixing things up, but, uh, it was still, uh, uh, we would have, we were glad to get open again. You've been operating for uh, 22 years now. Would you say, uh, this has been the biggest uh, challenge uh, you've faced in those years? Oh, hundred percent. What was uh, the biggest challenge to offering a curbside pickup? Um, well, I, I, I think that it, it, uh, um, there wasn't really that many challenges offering curbside pickup. It was just sort of not what we intended on doing when we first opened. So it was, uh, uh, it, it, uh, it kind of was what it was. We appreciated the support of, uh, the people that, uh, um, came and picked up food, but, uh, we only did it for about, uh, two weeks until we got open again. So it wasn't, uh, something that we did through the whole uh, closure. Really, I mean, I've you know I've talked to a lot of different uh, restaurateurs, and 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 one of the reasons you get into the business is for those personal interactions, and it's uh, we are you know kind of a, a social species. So I mean, the curbside, as you say, is something you do to get by, but it's not really kind of the business you you set out uh, to start. No, we've always done uh, takeout, but uh, I think that uh, it it. You know, you're not really interacting with people. They're phoning in an order, and you're running it out and putting it in the back seat of their car. So it was, uh, uh, it, you know, it kind of was what it was. We only had, uh, you know, 
two or three people working um, a day when we were doing it. So it was uh, as much something to do and and, uh, generate a little bit of revenue coming in, uh, but certainly not anything like uh, what we've been doing for the last uh, 22 years. The way 2020 is gone, I'd almost, you know, expect, you know, the phase two to start on Friday and they just sort of like rain for like seven days straight. And obviously that's not been the case. How closely have you been following the uh, the forecast lately? Um, well, you definitely check it out uh, uh, more than probably normal. Um, in the summer, uh, obviously the weather's uh, a factor because our patio is almost the same size as inside. Um, so it was uh, definitely a bonus to have a weekend that was uh, was nice. It, it, it was cool, uh, but uh, I think people were so happy to be outside that uh, that that wasn't a factor. And it looks like this week's going to be uh, significantly warmer. So hopefully, it will uh, continue on the trend it's been on. What has the uh, response been like uh, from the uh, community and like some of your regulars? You know, be just be you know during the pandemic and and just the, over the past couple of week, uh, past couple of days, I guess. Uh, you know, everyone's got uh, their regulars, and there's a uh, you know some you know people have a real uh, you know bond with uh, their local, and uh, I know there's a lot of people who have a bond with uh, with your place. Yeah, well, I, I you know over the. The uh, time that we were closed, uh, I definitely kept in contact with a, a number of them. Um, I was here pretty much uh, every day doing, whether it was just checking up on the place or doing some painting or power spraying the patio or whatever, and, and a number of them would drop by and you'd sort of have a chat from a distance out of their car. And so uh, in, in that sense, we kind of kept in touch, but it just wasn't the same as uh, it, it was when we were open and even now, I think that, you know, the, the staff is all wearing face masks and we have the tables, um, uh, separated. So you're not spending as much time socializing as you normally would, but it's still taking the time to have a quick chat. Uh, yeah, it's not the same, obviously maybe, you know, um, gives you faith that we're, we're on the way to getting back to, to normal to where we would normally be. Yeah, hundred percent. I think that uh, you know, for it, 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 it all came uh, up pretty quick. We found out last Monday that we were going to be open on Friday, and I think that uh, between uh, the the beer store and uh, um, Guinness and uh, Andersons uh, and. Uh, uh, Mill Street, that they did a spectacular job of getting us restocked uh, um, in in that short notice, and we had to get all our beer lines cleaned before we put anything back on there. And uh, so the draft services guys were great, and so I think everyone really worked hard to make sure that uh, we could get open. So we really appreciated that. And I think the staff were excited to get back. So uh, not a lot of problems uh, getting people uh, back to work. We're still, you know, normally this time of year we would increase our staff quite significantly because of the patio, but we haven't done that yet because we're not really sure what uh, what's in store in the next little while. But um, I think that uh, for the next phase we'll uh, we'll be able to get ready fairly quickly. 
Mike, I certainly appreciate the time uh, today. Thank you very much. Okay, have a great day. You as well. That is uh, Mike Bakubre, owner of the uh, Waltzing Weasel and uh, uh, one of uh, many places that reopened on Friday. Not every uh, restaurant or bar reopened on uh, Friday. More coming online uh, this week, and it'll be uh, certainly good to see. Uh, we need to take a break. When we come back, we'll have more of The Morning Show with Devin Peacock on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Welcome back, everybody. So as we've uh, been talking, you know, we're into second phase here of our reopening. Uh, the weather's uh, getting pretty nice. Uh, it's going to be sunny today. going to be sunny all week long. Uh, sunny right through to uh, Saturday. I've already seen a lot of people, you know, opening up their pools, uh, getting ready uh, for uh, the summer season. And uh, the question... Uh, for me, or one of the questions is, uh, have you gone to a pool yet? Uh, spray pads in London reopened on Friday. Community pools, park washrooms are still closed for now, but they are in the process of uh, reopening. For the, uh, the the park washrooms, the city says some will be uh, reopened uh, shortly. The uh, city says they're working to quickly reopen the city-owned pools as well. Uh, that said, certainly plenty of Londoners do have a pool in their backyard. Uh, beaches are expected to open about a week uh, a week uh, today. So uh, pools, uh, beaches are some of the uh, quintessential uh, summer staples. But how safe are they during a uh, pandemic? To talk about that, we're joined by Kay Biddle, Professor of Microbial Oceanography at Rutgers University. Uh, Kay, appreciate the time today. Thank you very much. Hi, Devin. Uh, my, my pleasure. Thanks for including me. Uh, happy uh, to have you uh, in the conversation. Uh, just in general, I mean, um, uh, is it uh, for, for people who want to go in a pool or anything like that? How safe is it to swim in a pool during the pandemic? So, when we think about outdoor activities and, and the safety of doing them, I think the first thing to remember is the main mechanism by which this virus, this coronavirus, is transmitted, and that's through aerosols. Um, so. Um, swimming itself in pools or the ocean um, is, is safe. Uh, the thing that people have to keep in mind is that um, aerosols are, are spread from um, close contact with people. So the most important thing is, is just um, keep in mind that social distancing is still really important when we go outside. We have a tendency when we go to the beaches or to pools to congregate, especially with kids. Um, you know, they want to play and wrestle and you know, whatever they want to do. But, um, you know, it's important that we just be disciplined with with that social distancing. Um, in terms of pools, um, chlorinated water has been shown to deactivate and, um, and inhibit some of the virus's membrane structure. Um, so, so that's actually a really good thing. Um, we, we still don't know yet um, how this virus uh, behaves in the ocean. Um, whether the ocean conditions, what would affect the ocean conditions have on its infectivity. Um, there are um, uh, conditions in the oceans that uh, serve to, to enhance the decay of viruses, like high light, light's a, a, a prominent factor to reduce the infectivity of viruses. Um, it's not a salt, a, a native saltwater virus, so salt can actually also potentially in, inhibit the infectivity, but that none of that has actually been studied uh, yet. It's interesting. So it's you know it's it's not the 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 swimming itself. It's just the only activities that come with swimming that, you know, really it's second nature to people. Which, uh, where people are, are used to the idea of social distancing when you're walking around, you're at the park. But when you're in the 
in the water it's you know you're you're swimming you're you're playing you're you're having fun and those natural tendencies uh could um could come into play uh, yeah absolutely and that's the primary uh concern you know when when you have a, a virus like this that we know transmits through through these aerosols you know when when people are talking or or in close contact um and so you know granted not not everyone um is is positive right for for coronavirus so you know that's that's an unknown um and so that's that's the thing is to is to just um kind of resist that that tendency for close contact in in these environments um i've been to the ocean i'm a surfer so i've been to the ocean you know several times so far um and one of the things that's also interesting about ocean environments and being outside is there's often wind. And so one of the things that, that we study at Rutgers and my group is how um, native ocean viruses can get aerosolized through turbulence, wind, waves, uh, bubbles, and then they get transported um, quite far um, by, by winds. And in some cases, those viruses um, actually help to nucleate clouds, and they're part of um, Earth's natural climate feedback. Um, so when you go to the beach and if you have uh, coronavirus that's already aerosolized, the winds can actually transport it further than it would in a, in a still room. So that's something that's, that's an additional consideration that people should keep in mind. Um, it's now when it's, when it's in the atmosphere, it's also diluted quite a bit. Um, so the, you know, it's all, it, it comes down to dosage and proximity. And so, um, the highest dosages are going to be um, from aerosols that are from people that may be infected. Um, it's not going to come from the ocean or a pool um, in, in, in the same amount. And so, so that's the primary um, health issue is just to try and reduce your exposure and your proximity um, to those dosages. And social distancing, if you just be disciplined with that, it'll, it'll take care of itself. And then uh, the one thing that comes to mind in terms of uh, public pools when they uh, reopen is just there's some high-touch areas that it's not uh, mm -hmm. swimming per se, but it's something that comes along with uh, the association of going to the pool and, and swimming. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Of course, you know, areas that are in the pool that people are touching that are contacted with the chlorinated water, I think, are less of a threat just because of that chemical effect. On, on the virus um, and its membrane, and, so, and, and it needs that to actually um, make contact and, and be absorbed in, into cells. Um, but other areas like, you know, bathrooms and high, high contact, high traffic, high touch areas, are, are, there's going to be some, some discipline that's needed to just keep those clean and, um, and you know, frequently clean as well. Okay, I uh, certainly appreciate the time today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Enjoy your day. You as well. That is uh, Kay Biddle, Professor of Microbial Oceanography at Rutgers University. Certainly something just to keep in mind uh, that uh, I was thinking of when we saw the City of London send out their uh, release uh, last week just about uh, community pools. They're not open yet. Spray pads in London are. Uh, community pools will be uh, reopened uh, soon. And so it's not uh, to scare anyone or to freak anybody out. It's just a reminder that as we move along with the reopening, uh, these are good step forwards. These are things you like to see, but we're not out of the woods yet uh, because we still have a pandemic on. We do not have a vaccine. Hopefully one is coming, but we know 
Uh, that is a, a longer process than we would like it to be. But if uh, vaccines were easy, then then this would be a completely different situation. So if you are going to be uh, going to the ocean when beaches open, or not to the ocean, to the... <laughs> <laughs> to the lake uh <laughs> we don't have any oceans around here uh if you want to go to the beach in a week or so when they open uh, you know by all means uh just uh, keep in mind um just uh the need to still physically distance and the socially distance because it's important but uh, i i don't blame people I mean, it can be deceiving just because you're doing something normal at second hand it's just something you need to be mindful of we'll take a break for news when we come back we'll have more of the morning show with devin peacock on global news radio 980 cfpl Welcome back, everybody. On the show, we've talked about businesses. We've talked about uh, the public. We've talked about students and seniors, uh, how everyone's been affected by the pandemic. Uh, we've talked uh, about many groups, but one group we have not uh, talked about yet is our veterans and our legions. Uh, last week, Dominion Command President Thomas Irvine said hundreds of legion branches across the country are in danger of closing permanently due to lost revenue. Said requests for help from federal and provincial governments have as of yet gone unanswered. So what is the solution? What is the situation for our Legion branches, uh, specifically in this region of the province? So Mark Rogers is District A Commander for the Royal Canadian Legion. District A runs from Windsor to Leamington to Chatham, Sarnia, Strathroy, London, and St. Thomas. He joins us now. I appreciate your time today. Good morning. How has the uh, pandemic gone for uh, Legions in your, in your district? A lot of the Legions have really suffered with the uh, the closure because of the lack of revenue. Um, historically, summer times tend to be slow in our branches, so the revenue generated throughout the winter usually gets them through the summer times. So financially, from an operational point of view, it, it, it's hurt us. However, the branches have done a, from my reports, have done a good job reaching out to their seniors and their veterans. Uh, every branch has a branch service officer, and... To my knowledge, they've been reaching out to their veterans and, and still helping them where they need it. Are there some branches uh, concerned they won't make it through uh, the pandemic? In our district, we have a couple that were already under our review. So um, I don't know whether this has hurt them more than they already are hurting. So we have a lot of controls in place where we can go in and, and help them and look at their books and look at their operations. So my hope is that once everyone starts to be able to reopen, we can get in there and, and give them some guidance. One of the issues when I was just reading about this is, I guess, in terms of uh, some of the help provided by the federal government, uh, some branches uh, may not qualify just because uh, they're run by volunteers, not paid staff. Yes, in, in some cases, um, some branches may only have one paid staff and some don't have any. So... Um, there's a lot of rules in, in, in things with these programs and our, our concern at our level is we don't want branches to do something that they're going to get in trouble for later on. The Prime Minister has already said that they want to make sure that there's no abuse of this. And we want to make sure our branches fall, fall where they're supposed to. What would you like to hear from uh, the province or from the uh, federal government uh, just with, with regards to this, if anything? I think they need to acknowledge that 
the legions are an important part of our communities. In some small communities, they're the only thing that's there. It's the community center. It could be, you know, possibly offices for different community groups. So in some small communities, it's really important that they, they are given some help in some form in order to keep, keep open and keep doing the job for the community. You just spoke to it there, but what would be lost if a branch were to close? You know, they um, are uh, important parts of our community. Yes, it would be. It would, some communities would be devastated because there not, might not be another legion for another half an hour away. So those veterans and those veterans' dependents, spouses, still need to be taken care of. So even though a branch closes, we, we still have the need to do our work. So if a branch closes, that just puts more pressure on the remaining branches that are already under a lot of pressure. If In a hypothetical, if a branch were to close, what's the likelihood it would uh, reopen or return at some point? Or does, when it closed, that's probably uh, likely the end? Probably it's the end. What we what we like to do is have branches amalgamate with another branch. That just happened in the wintertime in London. So if we can get branches to amalgamate, we still have that volunteer base and we still have that coverage of the area. In general, do you think we've, I mean, uh, certainly there's been, everyone's been impacted by the pandemic, but we haven't really talked a lot about the our, our legions and, and veterans in, in the sense of um, the branches anyway. Do you feel like they've, and, and you've been kind of, uh, forgotten a little bit during the pandemic or or how would you how would you view that i think a lot of the branches have have done a good job to still promote their branch and, and what they do um, social media when it's used good is a really good outlet for branches that keep putting information out there as a district we have our own facebook page and twitter page so we put information out there uh, i know with dominion ontario command every time there's an update from the government or from themselves, it's always out there. So within our district, we have seven zones. So when I get information, I send it down to the seven zone commanders who then get it out to the branches. So I think the information's out there. We just need people to, to, to read it and to understand that this is, this is important to plan ahead. So some branches have been able to reopen this past weekend uh, in the district, not all of them, but if you prepare publicly and prepare internally, hopefully once they do reopen, it can be a, a little bit better transition. Mark, I uh, certainly appreciate the time today. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. That is uh, Mark Rogers. He is a District A commander for the uh, Royal Canadian Legion, and uh, his district runs from uh, Windsor to Leamington up to Chatham, Cernia, Strathroy, London, and St. Thomas. So uh, a big, uh, big area, but certainly uh, legions uh, cannot be forgotten uh, during all of this. We've been talking about restaurants. We've been talking about local business. We've been talking about uh, nonprofits. You know, you go down the line, uh, the average uh, Londoner, grocery stores, malls, uh, on and on and on. Um, we cannot uh, forget our legions. They do you really have a important part of communities, especially uh, smaller communities, but even, you know, a community like London. It's uh, we need those legions. They provide a um, a good link to our veterans and uh, to our, our history and uh, can be important parts of the community. So uh, certainly we need to make sure that 
our uh, our legion branches are doing okay because uh, we know there are going to be closures in general you know jobs lost in general uh, because of uh, the pandemic through uh, a lot of different sectors um, the recovery is going to be uh, difficult it's going to be a long uh, recovery it's not going to be something that uh, bounces back quickly as we've we've talked about in the past in, in some sectors there might be a quick rebound which is good and we hope that is the case that is some of the uh, forecasts uh, that have come out but uh, in not all uh, sectors will the uh, recovery be a, a quick one which obviously makes sense so uh, we need to be mindful of just all the different uh, possibilities out there, all the different uh, uh, groups impacted by the pandemic, and certainly uh, our legions haven't been discussed as much as they probably uh, should have been. We are going to take a break, and in a couple of minutes, we'll be joined by Premier uh, Doug Ford. Uh, lots uh, to discuss on uh, the program with him uh, today. We'll be uh, talking about uh, the uh, Phase 2 reopening, uh, how uh, we can uh, look at that. Uh, supposedly, we are hearing that... Um, uh, Toronto and Hamilton might soon be joining uh, the phase two. Uh, so uh, that'd be good for those regions. I uh, know I had people from uh, Windsor and Essex uh, talking about coming up to London. So uh, there was a concern from some mayors about that happening. Uh, so the uh, phase two reopening is uh, now underway. That will be discussed. We'll also be talking and looking back over the past uh, three months, what it has been like, and we'll look forward to what is still to come. So lots to discuss with Premier Ford. This is The Morning Show with Devin Peacock on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, everyone. We are into the first full week of the second phase of the reopening for London for most of Ontario. Uh, Mother Nature sure seemed to play ball with everyone. The way 2020 is gone, you almost expect a nonstop rain to keep people from going to restaurant patios and getting out there, but that wasn't the case. Saw a lot of pictures on uh, my social media of people enjoying going to a patio, uh, getting a haircut. Uh, the uh, limit on social gatherings increased from 5 uh, to 10. And as we learned on Friday, you can now extend your personal bubble. People can get up and close and personal in a so social circle of uh, 10 people. Over the weekend, the provincial government also eased restrictions on wedding and funeral ceremonies. The number of people allowed to attend an indoor ceremony is restricted to 30% capacity of the venue, while outdoor events will be limited to 50 people. Participants uh, must follow health and safety protocols, including to physically distance from people, not from the same household or their established 10-person social circle. I've been uh, talking to a lot of businesses over the past three months, and I have not heard them as excited as they were over the weekend. It's been an interesting uh, three months, to say the least. Certainly a lot of uh, businesses uh, were not expecting uh, to hear a week ago today that they would be reopening on Friday, uh, but the word came down, and uh, many were happy uh, to hear it, whether it was uh, unexpected or not. The uh, reopening will happen in some stages, you know, for, for London. You know, we were talking to some businesses and uh, not all were planning to reopen their patios on uh, on Friday. Uh, the Church Key, for example, they're doing it on Wednesday. Uh, Grace's Restaurant is expanding their patio right now. They're going to be uh, maybe a couple of days even beyond that. And I, I think one of the, the positive things from that is people are taking it at their own pace. They're being safe. You look at uh, the United States and how the reopening has gone for them. 
and it has been uh, troubled to say the least arizona uh, currently experiencing a large number of uh, new coronavirus cases uh, 1300 is the daily average right now in arizona now they opened about a month ago actually a month ago today and they were in a different situation than we are right now as we go about our reopening but uh, there are some cautionary tales from the united states in terms of uh, the reopening and uh, what not to do uh, in this country we had a total number of cases that's uh, been going down more and more in uh, this country we've got uh, you know some provinces that have been covid free for the past little while and uh, that is really good to see too so uh, some some positives uh, to be sure in this country in a different situation than uh, where uh, they are at um, down in the United States. So it is uh, the first full week of the reopening in Ontario, and it is something that a lot of people have been looking forward to uh, for a long time. A lot of people happy to see that phase two reopening start on Friday, and uh, here we are on Monday with uh, a lot of great weather in the forecast, a lot of people looking forward to what is to come. And uh, that phase two reopening is something people are hoping uh, goes well, because obviously phase three follows that and some degree of normalcy right after that. And that is something people have been uh, striving for. There are some uh, new surveys that one I was just seeing in my email this morning, there's a bit of physical distancing COVID uh, fatigue that has taken place. So people looking forward to get back to normal. Uh, we are now joined on the line by Premier uh, Doug Ford. Our Premier, I appreciate your time this morning. Well, thanks for, uh, so much for having me on, Devin. We have advanced to the uh, second phase of the reopening uh, here in London. People can now extend their uh, social circle. Uh, the limit on social gatherings has increased. Uh, we had less than uh, 200 cases reported in Ontario on Sunday. So it's all a step forward. But is there any concern from you about people getting too comfortable too quickly and the virus making a return like we've seen down in the United States in some states? Yeah, well, that's always a concern, Devin, that, uh, you know, we, we, we aren't, uh, you know, we get a little lax and, but I'll tell you, we have to be vigilant uh, as an entire province. And I, I give all the credit to the people of Ontario. The reason uh, the numbers are at uh, the, the lowest in North America, any region our size, is because the people uh, followed the protocol and followed the guidelines. Uh, so by no means are we out of the woods, but we're going to have some really, really good news uh, for the areas that were closed last week. And uh, stay tuned at 1 o'clock and we'll be uh, announcing the, the areas. Can we expect then, uh, just based on that, uh, more areas to uh, reopen, like Toronto, Hamilton, or, or Windsor, or something like that? Well, I can't give you the exact uh, areas right now, uh, but uh, there's a vast majority of the people we're going to have some great news for. We're obviously uh, not in the clear, and this is something uh, that will be present in our lives uh, for many more months to come, but we're certainly in a better position now than at any point since the beginning of the pandemic. As you look back over the past three months, can you remember a point when you're at your most nervous or uneasy about where things could have could have gone? Well, I, I guess that goes for the whole country and around the world when this, this hit us. Um, I, I can tell the, the, the people listening uh, you know, everyone's talking about the second wave. We are 10 times more prepared on all fronts uh, through our hospitals, our healthcare system, uh, PPEs. So a wide uh, range of areas. Uh, numbers have come down in long-term care and we put a surge in, in long-term care as well. 
So we're, we still have a long ways to go. But uh, again, I, I told everyone, do not take your, you know, uh, you know, pedal to the metal, as, as they say, and, and don't stop. Keep, keep going and, and we'll, we'll get through this. The other uh, big concern is getting the economy back on its feet before we uh, were hit with this pandemic. Uh, Devon, our, you know, our province was absolutely booming. It was just going full steam ahead. And uh, our biggest problem was we needed 250,000 more people to fill the jobs that were out there. And I'm, I'm confident with the ingenuity and the manufacturing might of Ontario and the technology, uh, we're going to come right back uh, full steam ahead and and we'll be leading uh, once again because we're leading North America in job creation, economic development, and we're going to be in the same spot because I have all the confidence in, in the people of uh, Ontario. Hindsight is uh, 2020, uh, but as you look back over the past three months and the challenges the pandemic is going to pose to that uh, recovery, if you could go back and do something over before the pandemic or during, is there anything you would do differently? Well, I, I think uh, one area that caught us, uh, you know, everyone off guard was the PPE. And I've always said, uh, Devin, as long as I'm premier, I'll never rely on a foreign country or a foreign leader to dictate uh, our PPE supply. And that's exactly what ended up happening. Uh, we, we called out to the great manufacturers of Ontario. Everyone stepped up. And uh, now we're, we're doing, uh, you know, millions of face shields here, uh, surgical gowns, uh, masks and uh, hand sanitizer. So I, I knew we had the uh, manufacturing might. We just had to turn it on, and everyone changed over their lines and stepped up, and we're in, we're in good shape now. We have uh, numerous companies supplying PPE right here in Ontario, and I'm really going to start pushing uh, this made in Canada. You know, we have to start supporting our own. It's great. I'm a big free trader, don't get me wrong, but we have to take care of our own people uh, first, uh, we have a, a we're, we're an economic powerhouse in in North America. We have uh, close to 15 million people now, and uh, once we turn it on, uh, the rest of North America uh, knows we're back in the game. We are currently in uh, mid-June, and while it may feel always away, September's uh, not too uh, far away, two and a half months. Uh, you've said previously that uh, kids will be back in the classroom this fall. Do you know what that looks like and what some uh, changes uh, could be considered uh, and parents could expect uh, this fall? Well, Minister Lecce uh, is going to be announcing that over the next few weeks. We want to see how the numbers uh, roll out, and our number one priority is to protect the, the children and our kids and our students uh, going to school Um not only uh, up to grade 12, but secondary as, as well in the colleges and universities. And there's going to be uh, certain protocols and guidelines in, in place to make sure that we keep the kids safe. But I know he'll be announcing it. Uh, Minister Romano that takes care of the uh, colleges and universities, he's in contact with uh, every college and every university and working with them to uh, get a program that, that uh, works for each an individual uh, university and college depends where they are in the in the province, and that that's that's the key uh, here, uh, Devin. People don't realize, and I didn't even realize how how large Ontario is. We're we're larger than the Texas and California combined geographically, so we have a vast area. And, and what's good for let's say Kenora, way way north, uh, may not be good for Toronto or, or London or or Ottawa, but uh, I think we're all uh, coming together and, and as one unit again. So we're going to measure every single area uh, carefully. Premier uh, Doug Ford, I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. 
Devin, thank you so much, and I want to thank the listeners. Uh, you're absolute champions. And, Devin, I want to give a shout-out for yourself because during this pandemic, uh, you were out there, part of the team, promoting, you know, make sure you self-isolate and, and social distancing. And without your help, uh, the message wouldn't get out there. So, so thank you for uh, stepping up there. Thank you, our Premier Ford, and have a good day. You too. All the best. That is our Premier Doug Ford. That's our time for today. We uh, want to thank uh, Sylvain Charlebois, Christina Fox, Ashley Satchel, Michael Kubre, uh, Kay Biddle, uh, Mark Rogers, and uh, Doug Ford for coming on the show. Jacqueline Carbone is our content producer. Nelson Alexander is our technical producer. Andy Bingle and Steve Spruill are engineers. Stay tuned for the Craig Needle Show coming up next, followed by London Live with Mike Stubbs in the afternoon show with Jess Brady. Have a great day. Stay safe. We'll be back in 21 hours.